0: Chapter 8, The Dress Each time I've traveled to another country, another culture, I ask what is the gift to be received, and what is the gift that I might offer. It may not be obvious at the journey's start, but there's not a timetable on the exchange. There is, however, a knowing that we have something for each other. It's the same with place as with people. There is a sense of song line, and there are clearly pieces to be shared as part of my life, as part of a prayer and service to a bigger unfoldment of that more just beautiful world. It used to be I needed three reasons to board an airplane. Now, Joining in the protests and demand for human change with climate change, I need four reasons. With that, in heart-mind, we choose to stop at Aegina, the island 27 kilometers from Athens, before leaving Greece. Aegina was a daughter of the river god, Asopus. Not sure I got that pronunciation right daughter of the river god and the nymph Metope. During ancient times, it was the great sea power as well as the seat of power in the form of making coins, drachma, deriving from a Greek verb meaning to grasp. The original value was equivalent to a handful of arrows. When I read this, I could not help but remember a teaching somewhere along the way about the power of putting a handful of arrows or sticks together. It's kind of like the power of a reciprocal roof. There one stick is laid over another and no nails are needed to create a teepee like structure strong enough to serve as a roof or a foundation. There are many reasons to visit Egana, for its beauty, its archaeological sites, its ancient olive grove. Our main attraction, however, has been focused over the past few years on a sister project, one stick perhaps in the global community, named SOAR, School of All Relations. The story of Sore and the vision of Christine Korifas, the work and dedication of her partner Olivier, is one we have been called to in a variety of ways. It is the story of a woman who turns into her Greek roots, her history, to become part of the healing, taking responsibility in a new way for what her ancestors had begun. After living more simply in nature on another Greek island, after trekking for nine months and awakening herself through practice and prayer, Christina knew she needed to return and reclaim the family estate on Egena, which had been left vacant for years. The story is long, deep, and beautiful, worth her own telling for sure. Suffice it to say for me, it is one of the bringing forth of the best of the old while co creating the new. Christina, with Olivier's support, has brought new life to this old seat of power where her ancestor had sat as mayor. Through a vision to restore a place, Okia Karapanu has become a place for people to restore themselves to look deeply at what needs to change, to heal, to be redirected perhaps. A place particularly in the last years where young people have come for a number of months and where the inner life is given equal, if not more attention than the outer. An opportunity to reflect and vision before jumping too quickly into a mainstream path and career as many today are looking to match their lives with more integrity to their dreams, to focus their attention on the crisis in our Earth's climate. SOAR is a place where they can strengthen, deepen their practice, and prepare for the world they have inherited. It seems no mistake that they meet in a place with teachers and teachings that exist in because Christina turned to face her inheritance, to make something of it, sourced in the power of love, one might say, more than the power of status, class, or wealth. Soar, school of all relations. We bear witness to another watering hole, another small acupuncture point in the earth body, seeking to work with nature, with spirit, with all generations from different cultures. We visit them when we can to say thank you, to show our support, to see them for who they are and who they are becoming. We sit on the edge of these villages as olders and sometime mentors. We let them know they are not alone and part of a bigger movement and story. We work and listen as appropriate to share people, resources, skills, even vision. And it is one of the very special joys we experience in hard times. When packing for this latest journey, I found a very few simple gifts for the people we would be visiting. Irish green socks for the baby we love at Tamara, a scarf for another, earrings to be shared, and I packed a dress with a story, not knowing why or who it was for. But as soon as Christina and I sat together, I knew it was for her. One might say it even looked made for her. Years ago, maybe almost 30 now, I had walked into the UNICEF store in Santa Fe, New Mexico. This simple batik dress had ancient symbols on it, and it caught my attention immediately. It was a perfect fit. A month later, I saw my sister and co-author of the box remembering the gift, Colleen, wearing the exact same dress. We laughed, assured there must be only two of a kind on the entire planet. I grew very attached to mine, feeling like it had multicultural beauty, color, and prayer embodied in it. It was maybe a year later when I was in Hawaii for a month, writing more chapters for the box, particularly focused on the Book of Sorrow. I found a place on the ocean edge to fast for four days and nights, my annual way to stay alive and strengthen my prayer and care. The next day I flew back to California and ended my ceremony on the other end of the Pacific Bridge, in the ocean off of Santa Barbara, facing santa cruz island this was the song line of the chumash the story of the rainbow bridge crossing from santa barbara to santa cruz island it was alive in me it was there the chumash had fallen into the sea and become the dolphin tribe almost every time i stopped to look in this direction dolphins appeared over so many years. Now I made my offerings in gratitude and returned to my car, only to find that it had been broken into. Sacrifice arrives in surprising ways. In my experience, it always comes. Things till then had almost gone too smoothly. My pack was gone filled only with a few of my most precious things, original writings for the box, and my now-felt-to-be sacred dress, along with one or two hand-me-down jewels from my grandmother. It took a lot to let go again. After much upset, I informed the police and carried on. It was months later that they called to say the thieves had been caught in a drug bust and the empty pack had been found, and I was called to be a witness at their trial. While on the stand, the judge naturally asked me, well, what was in the pack? With uncontainable tears, I told of the writing, the jewelry, and the dress Somehow they were all in the same category. He asked me at the end of the cross-examinations if there was anything I wanted to say to the defendants. Again, the tears came, and I looked at them and asked, Please, can, can you just tell me what you did with those things? The accused flippantly responded, I dumped them all in a dumpster. Worthless was clearly the message. The two were found guilty as charged and sentenced. Their lawyer found me, however, afterwards outside the courtroom and said how personally sorry she was. It's hard to capture in writing the heart and emotion that somehow had made its way into that trial in all sides of the case. I mean, even the judge spoke gently to me, compassionately. There was more care elicited towards me in this loss than if it had been money for sure. A year later, I went to fast again in the high desert mountain land named by the Paiute people, the Inyos, dwelling place of great spirit. This annual ceremony had become my way of being current, living life as fully as I could, ready one might say to die any day. What is not complete or needs attention inevitably arises while there. I found it strange at best and almost embarrassing to tell anyone that the loss of that dress was still around it was almost haunting me. I laughed at my attention to such and attempted to move into some more substantial sacred matters. And yet again, the image returned. I spoke aloud, I recall. Okay, okay, what, what, what do I do? A response came, call Colleen and ask her for her dress. Oh my God, this was a stretch as Colleen was amongst the most generous of heart but not one I ever found too readily to share any of her clothes. My kind of communitarian tendencies to one who carried herself with such beauty and dignity in every garment she owned. Well, it was almost an affront Still, I had to act upon the message from the mount, no matter its oddity. The next week, I called Colleen. I told her the story of my dress. I asked if she still had hers, and if so, would she ever consider giving it to me? She responded with such tenderness saying how she would love to give it to me. Yet only weeks before, she had gifted it to her dear friend Nora. Her willingness was a gift itself, and we left it there. So I returned to let go again, a bit mystified by my strange attachment. What kind of power did this dress have over or within me? So-called power objects had come and gone in my life. I tended to place little power at all in material things, even in the days of being gifted so-called sacred objects. I tended to move them on to others. In some cases even, I had one so-called stone from the star Sirius stolen. I had also been gifted two boomerangs, said to be filled with medicine from the oldest aboriginal tribe down under. They did not feel right for me to have. And soon after, they were stolen, standing with my suitcase once at a baggage claim when I turned my back just for a moment. And all of this, it actually felt right on some level. Then there had been a two-foot-long, ornate silver wand of sorts, gifted to me by a man with a story at a large gathering of do-gooders. I listened and received his gift respectfully, even though I was not sure about it, and I never saw him again. Truly being an innocent, not attracted to such power objects, I took it to a fairly renowned Métis medicine person I knew to ask him what he thought about it. To my surprise, he couldn't or wouldn't say too much, only, rather strongly, indicated that he wanted it. I went home with it, I listened to his desire for it keep emerging in subtle and not-so-subtle ways over the next year. At what I felt to be the right time, I gave it to him as a gift. Crystals, rattles, relics, so many sacred objects passing through human hands over time. It just was not my way to be with such. And yet here... A dress would not let me go. A few months later, Colleen called me out of the blue, as that saying goes. Nora had pretty suddenly and unexpectedly died. Colleen had asked her husband to send me the dress, and she asked me to send him the box as a thank you. Well, I was more than happy to do so and for sure had a mixture of emotions, of course, regarding the gift of the dress coming through the death of a beloved. And when it arrived, I was delighted and felt I was somehow carrying on my relationship with Colleen and even Nora, whom I had never met. It must have been a year later, that I drove with wind to Walnut Creek to visit his dad. Fisk was more than a kind of father I never had. He truly became a father to me. The one you can tell all to, the one who is genuinely curious about you and your life. The one who at then age 90, I think, was up on the latest and would tell you honestly what he thought about anything and anyone. I often kid, saying if I had met him first before Wyn, I would have probably married him. Actually, it was him that I danced the night away with when Wyn and I got married, as Wyn had hurt his back. But that's another story. Fisk wanted to eat at the Butternut Cafe. All the waiters knew him and were happy when he arrived. Though not my favorite of middle America food, the ambience created around our table there was memorable. Wynn and his dad had developed a deep friendship only in the second half of everybody's life. But like Wynn and I, it was worth waiting for. Fisk was our confidant, our elder. Our friend, our love, and we drove the seven hours to see him at least twice a year. At this particular dinner, I wore my dress. It was a hot summer evening and it all seemed to fit. Somehow the story came out after Fisk noticed me in the dress and gave me one of those heart opening compliments. And then came the part about the stolen dress, my search for the dress, Nora dying a few months back now, and me having Nora's dress. How strange it all seemed. As I spoke, I watched Fisk's eyes fill with tears. It was always something to catch his tears within our stories or his own shared memories especially when a certain piece of music was playing. And then the tears turned to sobs. And of course, we stopped to ask, what? What's going on? Nora, it turns out, had been Fisk's Unitarian minister. More than that, she had been a beloved, a dear, close friend of his all had met and worked together at the Unitarian Church, where Fisk again served his wider community as an elder. The dress had opened the door to give room for expression of the deep loss and grief that Fisk had been carrying for months. He had had no one really to share his loss with. And with that, we each entered the conversation about death what was to come, how we all would manage or not, relate, live with, and without each other. For some reason, it's taken me days to write this simple story. I needed to tell it to Christina when I gifted her the dress, and telling it for the first time in full, I felt I needed to write it. So today I do and offer it to you in honor of the journey, the attachments, the love, the mystery, the following of heart through address no less. And as I write today, Wynne reminds me, it is the second year anniversary of Fisk's death at age 97. He passed over in peace surrounded by family, his favorite music playing, his 90-year-old girlfriend he took up after his wife's death, holding his hand. So with this story, I celebrate his life. I feel the loss still and always, but mostly gratitude for what we shared. Sharing what we have, gifting what we can, this, is the book of grace, the book that follows that book of sorrow in that box.